I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work to get seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down our favorite narrative tropes. Before we dive in, remember that we release bonus content for each and every episode of this podcast over on patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. So if you want to support us and get yourself even more info and resources, go check that out. Today will probably just be a master list of all this content that we talked about and recommended uh, in addition to probably some bonus stuff. So, uh, Christina... Tropes. (laughs) Tropes. <laughs> Tropes. Yes. Tropes. As usual, I didn't fill out the document and you did. <laughs> well, because I, I, my brain is so scattered that if I don't write something down, then I, th- I won't say anything. Sure. I like quickly put a bunch of stuff in my phone, like little bullet points of things that immediately came to mind. Okay. So you want to go first? What's, what was your first bullet point? Okay. My first bullet point. It's also poorly organized (laughs) because I was like, oh, yeah, and that ties to this one. Then it's like five down. I would say one of my favorite tropes is the and then there were none trope of like one of us is the killer kind of a thing. Okay. And that I think spans like genres like one of my favorite movies is clue and but then also the thing i don't know if you've seen the thing have you seen clue Mm. i feel like i have but i i also may have just seen enough memes that i think i've seen clue so it's hard to say (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay well the thing is like an approach to that with with an alien invader taking over bodies and also did you watch boy meets world I did not as closely as like Lizzie McGuire, but I did watch Boy Meets World. I'm familiar with it. One of my favorite episodes of that show is And Then There Was Sean. That's the title of it. But it's like a spoof of a slasher movie. And it's at the peak of like, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Scream, sort of bringing back to life the slashers of the 90s. Sure. Um, And Jennifer Love Hewitt has a cameo in it. Her name is Jennifer Love Pfefferman. Now I'm just going off on a whole tangent for Boy Meets World <laughs> so fans. So what, what, what do you like about the, and then there were one, uh, or then there was one trope? I I just like that, the sort of whodunit of it, but that it's like, you have to read people and it's one of the people that you may be rooting for. And I think that's why I love, I mean, I love Scream because it's so meta and it is like playing with tropes in general. But I also love that it's like, one of the main characters is the killer, which I think that kicked off in a way. Other other slashers have, there definitely were earlier ones where one of the people you're following is the killer, but the more famous slashers were like a masked outsider character, like Halloween sure. or Friday the 13th. It wasn't like a whodunit, just like sure. who's going to get picked off next. Whereas when when it's about trying to read people and look for clues... And seeing who you can trust, I just, I like that. And, and I've, you know, done that myself. I did it pretty poorly in my first feature summit. I was 21, though, when I wrote it, so, you know. And that also was playing with slasher tropes. But I think in a way where I didn't lean into it enough. Mm-hmm. But then I also sort of used tropes to, like, justify plot. And so it was kind of, like, not enough on either end. Sure. You're 21. It happened. Right, I was 21. It was, it was an experiment. It was an experiment. It was my first, even though my first, we've talked about this already, it was like my first real big project. And Game Brunch is also a play with that in That's like true. a very different way. I like just this idea of someone here is up to no good and the audience has to figure it out. And I played, you know, I subverted that with Game Brunch in a, in a different kind of way. Cool. Are there <laughs> are there bad examples uh, of this or bad versions of this that you've seen that you're like, this is technically this trope, but I hate this version? I mean, of course, yeah. I don't, I don't want to like out <laughs> too many bad <laughs> things just because horror movies do it all the time. Stylistically then, high, higher level. Like what about a bad I one? would say it's just like, not smart, where it's not being clever sure. or playing with what's already been done. It's just mm-hmm. sort of regurgitating that. And I would say, okay, like Scre- the, the new Scream, Scream 5, but it's called just Scream, is an example for me of that 
in a boring way because sure i don't know have you seen the new scream i haven't seen any of the screams i'm i you know me i'm not really a movie person in general but i'm also not a horror movie person at all right scream is one of my favorite movies and like i said earlier it is partly because it's playing with tropes so much and it's such a meta it's such a meta movie that like everyone i know who loves horror like is obsessed with scream so i'm sure at some point i will see scream the thing is like i don't know if you can i think you would still enjoy it because the writing's sharp and the acting's great and it's fun but it it has now been like now people have done Scream in a variety of ways. What Scream did, you know, they've done like in a lesser way. And I would say sure. the new Scream is a version of that where like it's being meta on meta and on a scene by scene basis, it works at times, but like the writing and the acting is not where it needs to be to really pull it off in a unique way. It's just kind of regurgitating what Scream did, even down to like the tropes where it is subverting the exact same things that that movie subverted so it's not like sure clever it's just a rehash and that's probably something we could say about a lot of the tropes just in general like you know we we wanted to talk about tropes just because like i think that there is a version of like media critique that's like anything with tropes is bad because it's not unique but it's like nothing Mm -hmm. is unique and i do think that uh, it's worth celebrating the aspect the common aspects of media and film and storytelling that we do still enjoy but the key is always if you're going to do a fairly common trope you have to do something new with it whether it's subverting how that trope normally works whether it's putting um uncharacteristic people into a trope that we've seen uh with other people and other types of characters like playing with archetypes and that kind of stuff you have to be doing something inventive with it in order for it to be worth it otherwise like you are just doing a checklist of like okay i've got these three tropes therefore i'm gonna make a million dollars right i think that and like i think it's impossible to make a horror movie now without engaging with tropes in some way just because sure there's it's possible to be original like completely Mm -hmm. because there's so many stories have already been told and so there is that fine line between like are you just checking the boxes of tropes or are you actually engaging with them in a clever way where you're doing something unique or play doing a play on them that's original or fresh or just funny. I think if you're going funny, then you can kind of go super cliche. But if you're not, then it's a really fine line. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, my my first trope is one that I knew I would share with Christina because we've talked about it in the past, but it's definitely enemies to lovers. One of my absolute yes. favorite tropes of all time is always going to be enemies to lovers. And I think for me, it's just the psychology of like someone who likes to argue a lot. <laughs> like yeah. for me, arguments are like the most fun thing to write about. Mm-hmm. I, you know, they're engaging. They're inherently dramatic. There's so much you can do throughout an argument. And so like when you pair two people with like very strong personalities that are constantly fighting and then also eventually they kiss oh that's just excellent (laughs) stuff just excellent stuff i agree with that i think also why i like it so much is even though it's obviously written to be you know it's not real life right that subgenre of romantic comedy is most enjoyable because i feel like the people are being themselves yeah that's a good point we've talked about in a previous episode when kelsey was on and we were talking about i guess writing from personal experience i think that was the episode Mm -hmm. we talked about rom-coms a little and i said i found i find it kind of boring when people are like pursuing love Mm -hmm. and i think and i i still feel that way like i think when you're putting on a persona and you're dating and you're doing the like let me get to know you that always reads as so false in movies because that's not how it would really play out but when it's already this like heightened situation where they're on opposite sides of whatever Mm -hmm. it's not like a by the numbers sure dating you can fall in love at your worst then imagine how good the best right and so i just that's also why i like the fake dating i don't know if that was on your list but oh that's number two hell yeah great (laughs) yeah so same like they're because they're being themselves they're not trying to impress each other then it feels like a more organic love story i I can buy as opposed to Mm -hmm. like they went on three dates and it's this epic romance and when really it'd be kind of creepy like how quickly they fall in love in those movies yeah no I, i like what you said about it being like more honest in some ways because like 
and I feel this way about like a lot of relationships. It's like, you know, you have those friends who you can't be honest with. Not really. Like you're, it's not that you're being dishonest. It's just that there's always this sort of wall up where you don't feel completely comfortable to just like say what's on your mind. And obviously that's such a vital part of a, a healthy relationship. So mm-hmm. enemies to lovers forces you to immediately constantly be like bearing your soul to this other person. And yeah, it's like the worst, ugliest parts, but at least it's honest. At least there's, you know, not really uh, a, a potential to like, you're, you're they, they know what they're getting. They know exactly who you are. And if they decide like, oh, yeah, this is this is doing it for me. I think that works. I will say for parts types of this trope that don't work for me, obviously, is like there's definitely a line. And some like certainly like romance and erotica readers like when things go over the line a little bit more like there's there's definitely darker (laughs) enemies to lovers stuff that is not really my jam Mm -hmm. that even in the fantasy element of like a romance world, if it's a little too rough or problematic, I don't like it. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, you you don't get the it's always the guy you don't get to get the girl (laughs) after this like you're you should be in jail you should certainly not be like you know but it's the animal attraction and it's fine i don't like that i think that that is that's just not my jam i will also say there are exceptions to this exception to my fake dating era for for my enemies to lovers loving but i do get kind of annoyed when it turns out that the reason for like the colonel that made them enemies was just like a miscommunication mm. not always but i don't like it when it's like oh they didn't need to be enemies like they're they there was just one weird thing that happened and then they both or one of them blew it out of proportion and so the other one is reacting to that i find that less interesting than two people who do have fundamental differences and yeah are probably blowing things out of proportion but like i don't know i don't feel as much of a spark when it's like one person's just very nice but has been turned into a mean person you know yeah. i i just mm-hmm. i'm like let them let them be problematic let them be troublesome like i i think that it's more interesting to watch a character have to reckon with their own bullshit rather than being like oh you just i i said rice not race and this whole thing could have been you know like i i don't like it when it boils down to that and it's like okay fine so now we're in love forever like you actually have to work something out through enemies to lovers yes i think i agree on that note though i agree with you but that only works when there's going to be real um growth from one of the characters yeah and did you see i don't know what it's called and maybe it's better that i don't name it but there was this netflix rom-com that just was just came out like two weeks ago and it was a military oh i've heard of it i have not seen it though i haven't seen it i watched it's one of those like autoplay situations with netflix Mm -hmm. where i watch the whole trailer and it tells you the whole movie basically and uh and then I was like, let me look up reviews because I'm curious. And of course they weren't good. But the plot is like a super left bartender, like mm-hmm. left leaning politically bartender f- has a fake relationship with, this is, goes with one and two of yours because they're also sure. like enemies to lovers, but it's also Those a are fake often what goes together because it's fun when people who hate each other have to pretend to love each other, right? Like it's... Yeah. It's it's the best pairing. It's it's a it's a good uh wine and entree pairing, but continue. Yes. Um so they have to she needs health insurance because she just got diagnosed with diabetes and can't afford the meds, insulin, and there's like a good political commentary in that, but there it really doesn't like actually address the issue with with America in that. It's sure. just a plot device essentially. And he is uh, he's um, in the Navy, guy, right? I think. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's the Navy. I don't know. But uh, he says some like real racist shit within the first yeah, 10 minutes that they yeah, never address. Ext- <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, he I don't he needs money for some reason. I don't quite get it from the trailer, but he agrees to have a fake wedding to get the military benefits so she can get a health insurance. And of course, they fall in love. But one of the interviews I read with the with the actress, she was like, oh, uh, you know, it's about meeting in the middle and one is like super extreme on the God. left and one is super extreme on the right and they find a more moderate love story. And I'm like, that's not 
what anyone's rooting for. And like no. wanting health insurance is not extreme. It is not <laughs> left. Wow, what are you, a socialist? And like yeah. being, being racist is not something that you should meet in the middle on. Like that movie would be okay if he does a whole, you know, character arc where sure. he evolves as a human and realizes Well, what if he gives up his right. racism against like half of the people he's racist against? Like right. can well, he pick and like choose? Like is it okay does. if he's racist against some people? That's improvement, right? <laughs> So yeah, that was meeting my, in the middle. <laughs> that was my the one thing about that where I think that trope can be done absolutely horrifically. Yes, for sure. And but I I think that like most stories are worse when there isn't some kind of arc for a character, you know, where there's not some kind of change. Like you know, the most famous obviously version of enemies to lovers for good reasons is Pride and Prejudice, which is, mm -hmm. I think, one of, like, there's a reason why it gets retold every couple of years in a totally different way, and it fucking slaps every time. Pride and Prejudice is great because both characters have these, like, very distinct character flaws that they have to work out with each other in order to become self-actualized as individuals and to deserve each other in the end. And like, I think that that is the most interesting version of this trope, even though it is a trope that like, once you see it, you're like, oh, so this is an enemies to lovers story. But like, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people to challenge each other and to through, yes, sexy conflict, become mm -hmm. better people at the end. And I, I think that the enemies to lovers trope is a really lovely staging for that kind of story. And that's the kind of story I like to watch. And again, I like to watch hot people argue. <laughs> I was in speech and debate for six years. It's definitely a thing of mine. I like watching hot people argue. So I, I'll, my other recommendations for this, because as you all know, I'm, I'm insane uh, for <laughs> books. <laughs> and this one is like the book is better than the movie for a lot of reasons. The Hating Game by Sally Thorne. There is a Hulu version. It's fine. But like the way that this book is written and like the way you get the interiority of the characters from a first person book is never going to be able to translate well to screen. So mm -hmm. I highly recommend if you like Enemies to Lovers Romance, Hating Game by Sally Thorne is like a big deal for a reason. Um, I will also say this is also getting adapted into, I think, a movie, maybe a TV show. I'm not sure. Uh, Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Very good. I don't love the writing style as much, but the characters are so good um, mm -hmm. and the story is really fun. So I, I can definitely get behind it. Uh, Battle Royale by Lucy Parker is like basically... The Great British Bake Off, if the Simon Cowell judge fell in love with, like, the sparkliest, <laughs> like, most colorful former contestant um, and eventually had to work together. It's just great. Very fun. And then for movies, the only good, in my opinion, Netflix rom-com pretty much uh, set it up. I've watched it twice in the past month because set it up, I just... I just love it. There's stuff one. that's wrong with it. Yeah. But it's so good. The leads have so much chemistry. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's very good. Highly recommend Set It Up. And then obviously the Buffy Spike arc in Buffy <laughs> has always been a, a soft yes. spot. There are elements of it. Super problematic. <laughs> you know, there's elements of it that are problematic. But like I, I was <laughs> reading something the other day about like what was so fun about that relationship is that like Spike's character growth happened while he still canonically doesn't have a soul, have a soul yeah and like it was a it was proof that like good decisions aren't always unselfish and so maybe as humans we can like give ourselves a break because i think that some people get very up in arms about like well you made a good decision but you did it selfishly so you're still a bad person and i think that the spike kind of arc is an interesting alternative view of that <laughs> and also that actor is just so fun he is so fun that's a great segue into my next one but also just to talk about that a little bit <laughs> <laughs> we could i could do i mean there is already a buffy podcast but like mm -hmm. we could talk about that forever because i am forever oh, for team sure. spike even though he is so mm -hmm. problematic oh so problematic but like i consider that just joss whedon being a bad guy of and course, not the right. character right but also like if just comparing him to Angel, Angel is horrific with without a soul, and look at mm -hmm. what Spike was capable of without a soul, mm -hmm. and the fact that he gets held accountable for things he did without a soul, but Angel never does, was always yeah. a big pet peeve of mine. Yeah, for sure, a hundred percent agree. Actually, Angel will come up in a later part of my tropes <laughs> conversation. But Great. what is your next trope? Uh, the chosen one. 
sort of mm, storyline. I'm into it. I like I like That's such a normie trope. Talk about it. It is such it. a normie trope. Well, it's because of Buffy. I mean, sure. you know, I think also just high level or like high concept things that I enjoy tend when I go that route, they tend to be chosen one type sure. of things like Buffy, like Harry Potter, like I mean, I'm not really a big Star Wars fan. Um but yeah, <laughs> I I tend to like, even like The Matrix, I tend to like this idea of someone being chosen. And I think mm-hmm. it's because of my early, early, you know, love of Buffy and- For sure. And that. But the thing that's sort of a pet peeve of mine within that is that these storylines always, 90% of the time, steal their concepts from from yoga and mm. and eastern religion and spiritual practices and they they never center you know south asian or east asian or really people of color generally speaking sure yeah. even like keanu reeves in in the matrix was like casting he was sort of down the line after a variety of options um and it was just sort of like lucky that he happened to be <laughs> asian but yeah, I, I, that's one that I just am like a big fan of. And that, that goes in hand in hand with another thing that I had on the list. So I guess I just kind of wanted to connect them. But sure. the like magical minority trope really pisses me off. Okay. So this is an example I, of a trope you do not like. Right. Yes. But it's this like weird, I have this weird sort of like tug and pull with that because what I just said were like certain spiritual practices or just like things that have things that are used to show like a like a woo-woo kind of person are often associated with like basic white girlness but they're actually eastern spiritual practices and so when it's like a character in a movie that is like the mystical asian or or sort of magical other Mm -hmm. it's frustrating when it is othering an Asian person or also it's black people like the magical Negro trope and very often indigenous people as well. Mm-hmm. So that like is frustrating. But then when I see it, that same kind of thing, but then it's a white person, it like annoys me just as much in a different way because it's appropriating sure. it without even giving credit. And it's like, I don't know how I feel. I'm kind of like, maybe it should be. Would I would I rather it have been a South Asian person in that role because at least there would be a level of authenticity to where that stuff is coming from. But then it would just be perpetuating this trope. Well, I think that the trope, the the big problems with like how that trope gets used, even when it's attempting to like marry performer to like origin of the trope is that like they're always a sideline character. Right. Like it's it was obviously different if like they're the chosen one, if they are the central or mm-hmm. one of the central characters. But that's mm-hmm. almost never the case. So it usually is just going to be blanket problematic when you never center those stories, even when you're trying to do them justice. Right. And like even, I mean, Star Wars, the the force is yoga. Mm-hmm. The Matrix, that's yoga as well. It would be one thing if, even if the chosen one wasn't of Asian descent, but if like all the characters were diverse and so the one character of color isn't like this stereotype. Sure, singled out kind of. Right. Like you can have you can you can have someone who's like the woo woo character in a thing be a person of Asian descent if you also have other Asian characters who aren't that stereotype. And that's like the thing that's missing. But so often it's like white media, you know, people making this stuff. And and so I guess what I'm saying is like, I just want non-white people making these stories so that we can start having like authentic representation of that actual the spiritual practices that get appropriated all the time in mm-hmm. these narratives and have them be authentically represented by the by where they originate from without stereotyping those characters as like the singular version of what it looks like to be Asian. Sure. And yeah, so I had a couple of like in within that that I thought did it kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs> so one I again not a big not a big uh Star Wars fan, but I did really like in I guess this 
second one of Last the Jedi. new series. I was actually hoping that we, we could get to this because I have lots of thoughts about Star, <laughs> Star Wars related to the Chosen One trope because I do think my big problem with Chosen One trope as a concept is that it often undermines characterization rather mm-hmm. than like holding someone up. And I think The Last sure. Jedi is a good example of a cool idea that was immediately fucking undercut spoiler alert for the third Star Wars movie uh, of the neutral. That's exactly the point that I was going to Mm -hmm. make. Yeah. As someone who's not a big fan, but I've, you know, seen them all. The one Mm. thing I liked about that one was that she isn't from this amazing legacy. Mm -hmm. This one fucking bloodline (laughs) that isn't even supposed to exist because like canonically Jedi's, I guess there was an interview that where George Lucas was like, Jedi's can fuck. They just can't get married or fall in love. And it's like, that seems like a weird (laughs) distinction, George, but okay. But yeah, this one magical family who's like, we're not supposed to do this, but we keep doing it. Thank God. Because all of us are special. Anyways, continue. (laughs) Right. Well, because it also, I feel like ties... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you love Star Wars. I, I'm i like, they're fine. Um, <laughs> I think the original second one, what's it called? Uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yes, Empire Strikes Back is like a good Incredible movie. Incredible movie. Yes, Such a good it's movie. like a great movie in a series of fine movies. Yeah. Um, that's my feeling. Completely fair. <laughs> but that's what I like about it, though, because it also ties back, even though there's no fucking South Asians in any of this any of this entire series. That, I mean, that's I just like, like a problem with sci-fi in general. Like Firefly right. is a really cool like show with like all these Asian languages and no Asian characters. What the right. fuck? Right. But for this, because they are, because the force is specifically stealing from yoga, like mm-hmm. straight up, that's at least one like tenant is that anyone mm-hmm. can meditate and become all of these things that the movie says, but in like a different, you know, all different language. And that was the one thing that I thought like, oh, they did this well. And it's not some like this idea that you inherit it and that it's a it's a legacy and it's like a mm-hmm. caste thing because, sure. you know, that's from South Asian culture. And so that was the one thing that I liked. Um, but then they totally like fuck it up with the third one and screw over their characters of color. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they screw over everyone. I actually, as we were talking about this, though, like one of the other obviously like big tentpole fantasy trilogies, Lord of the Rings, I think actually does do an interesting sort of inversion of chosen one tropes where Frodo isn't the chosen one. He inherits the ring from his weirdo uncle from a children's mm. book. <laughs> and basically it's just like, well, this is a horrible thing. And I have it, so I guess it's my duty. And like, he wasn't chosen in any particular way. He is not particularly special, but that is what is special about him. And like, there's been a lot of like academic, you know, writings about sort of like Lord of the Rings and, and Frodo as the protagonist. But I, I do think it was always like really nice where it's like, this is just a little guy who likes to garden and eat food, but <laughs> he has this horrible burden and he could have passed it off to anyone at any time. He could have said, this is not my problem. Somebody else deal with this. But he didn't. He is the chosen one because he chose to be. And I think that that's that's really lovely. Totally. And then the other thing that came to mind because I brought up the magical minority trope is Gremlins, which is one of my favorite movies. I haven't seen Gremlins. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of like you could read into the Gremlins as a racist pr- depiction of like a variety of characters of color. Like you could read it as black people, you could read it. There's a lot of coded them being coded as Italians in it. Like there's a lot, if you watch it, there's a lot of like potential racism. And like, so yes. And also it is racist in how the creatures are discovered. It's like, it is the mystical Asian trope. They're in Chinatown. Mm. They go into this shop with this Chinese shopkeeper who has like a glass eye and a long beard. And and so it's very problematic in, in those dated 80s ways. It's from 1989. But it's also just such a fun movie. Um, And the one thing I was going to say that I like about it that I think it does better than other 80s movies that have the sort of mystical Asian trope is at the end of the movie. I'm going to spoiler it. Sorry, Brie. It doesn't spoil anything really, though. The whole movie It's from 1989. It's my own fault. (laughs) Right. And you you should watch it at Christmas time before you go into your rom-com, like (laughs) nothing but Christmas rom-com. Sure. I I recommend bridging sort of Halloween and Christmas. Just check out Gremlins. But the final scene. Writing it down. Good. The final scene is Mr. Wing, the guy who owns the shop, the Chinatown shop, who has 
Gizmo, who's the creature's name is Mogwai. Mm-hmm. I did know that. <laughs> his his name is Gizmo, but the name of the creatures, they're Mogwais, which is Cantonese for devil. Um, which I don't think the movie tells you. You're just it's one of those like random trivia things I know. Yeah, like Darth Vader is Darth Father. Right, right. Uh, but he shows up and tells the white people that they were irresponsible and they can't handle the responsibility of owning the Mogwai because mm. they let them get wet and fed them after midnight and did all the wrong things and chaos ensued. And so I do like that it is basically being like white Americans are not responsible enough with these tropes to do them respectfully and to to get to enjoy a mogwai friend. So like that I think is the one thing that movie does well in terms of at least that's my how I'm choosing to interpret it. <laughs> Our art belongs to its consumers. That's Death right. of the artist, etc. <laughs> right. That was, I guess, kind of two in one, like a, like a, I really like this, but I hate this piece of it mm-hmm. and other, and the ways in which the people of color never get to be the chosen one, except when they're playing this like magical side character that's there to guide the white protagonist. Right. That happens to women a lot too, like like Lego movie, for instance, and you know, insert a million other movies here where it's like the female character is good at everything. Uh, Ant-Man is another good one, mm-hmm. and then has to train the unremarkable chosen one white guy uh, who becomes her love interest because she he earns her respect, but it's only because she trains him to be respectful. He gets to do the cool stuff, and then he's like, hey, babe, what's up? That, that happens uh, to that as well. I think men just need to stop making movies. Um, <laughs> that's just like my hot take for this middle of the episode. Uh, so we already kind of talked about fake dating, but that's definitely my next one, fake dating. Um, <laughs> I just finished the second book that I wrote this year. Everybody remember how I wrote a book in our last solo episode? I wrote another one and this one has fake dating. I haven't done it great yet, but like I always knew I was going to have to because fake dating is definitely one of my favorite tropes because I think it pairs well with like the forced proximity trope, which I also really like. So I guess I'll combine those two because like, you know, when you're trying to tell a story about two people who like need to make changes, who are going to fall in love, like you have to make sure that they are together frequently enough to affect each other and Mm -hmm. to like start to negotiate their relationship in a new way from potentially the beginning. And so fake dating is obviously an an easy way to force them to have to be together and put them in situations where like that are romantic, even if they don't feel romantic towards each other yet. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like that a lot. I just think it's neat. (laughs) I like that too. I like it because it's, I feel like it starts, it grows from friendship. Mm-hmm. And that's always a fun thing to see. Like, or if not friendship, because we did talk about like enemies to lovers right. and fake dating often being paired with each other. If not friendship, at least teamwork. Like the right. they are they have to be partners. They have to work together. Friendship somewhere falls in there. Like sure. in within the falling for each other, first there is this like companionship happening of like, oh, I actually don't mind being around you. Oh, I actually mm-hmm. enjoy being around you, and then. I'm in love with you, but yeah. Yeah, totally. I also, like, as a person who's a big fan of just sort of, like, I don't think this is a trope, but competence porn. Uh, Mm. Just, like, people being good at stuff. Um, I think, like, people having to, like, learn to work together is definitely a thing that I enjoy watching. And this isn't just for romance reasons, but also just in general. Like, when two characters are forced to, like, work together against incredible odds, Oh, I love that shit. I eat that shit up. Frodo and Sam getting separated from the rest of the fellowship and having to be like these two little guys traipsing across like terrifying monster trails uh, to do one little thing together. Like, that's great. I love that. I love watching people like beat the odds by working together. I'm sure Christina's never heard of anything like this, certainly not <laughs> <laughs> centrally to her next project. And so I know you agree with me. But yeah, like that's enemy or yes. uh, fake dating forces you to do that. So just some some high level recommendations here. Uh, if you're if you're looking for a movie related book, because uh, I've been trying to read books about uh, romance novels about like the film industry, just because like I'm writing books about the film industry. And so I'm looking to see what what's out there. There's a great fake dating one called How to Fake It in Hollywood by Ava Wilder, where two actors um, fake date because their publicist sets them up because both of them need a career boost that the other 
person could help them with. One guy's like kind of a washed up actor who needs to be brought back into respectability. And the other one is like a slightly younger um, actress who is in one of those like CW shows and got written off. And so she's trying to like, she's doing the adult version of like getting over being a Disney kid kind of thing where it's like, mm-hmm. I need to be taken seriously. And so they, they fake date to, you know, grant each other their legitimacy for their careers. And then, Oh my goodness, they fall in love. So that's a pretty good one. Spanish love deception by Elena Armas is a pretty like bog standard. I need a date to a wedding. Cause my family is really clingy, but very fun version of one. And then two of my favorite books that I've read this year, luck of the draw by Kate Claiborne, which is also enemies to love. And The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood, which has an asexual lead. Technically, actually, both of the main leads are asexual, but you don't really know that the guy is until she she released a like bonus chapter of the guy's perspective of their sex scene, their first sex scene, and it confirms that he is also a demisexual, gray asexual, uh, and I like that a lot. A plus. And then, of course, um, I guess another Netflix movie. That's fine. This is one of the better ones, but it's still, I would say, certainly not as good as Set It Up uh, The to All the Boys I've Loved Before. Obviously starts with a fake dating premise. Can you think of any other fake dating movies? I guess like The uh, Wedding Date. It's a good one. A good one, parentheses. It's not a good movie, though. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a good example of the trope. I don't know if I would recommend it. Yeah, I, I was like, mm, let me let me walk that back because there's there's a lot of conversations, thankfully now happening about like the sort of ne- grossness of like the sex worker trope in fake dating and all of that stuff. So I don't want to weave into that right now. But that's just the first example that came to mind. Yeah, I mean, I would I feel like the. Er- Probably not the original, but the first one that I can recall would be Can't Buy Me Love from the 80s with Patrick Dempsey and some blonde actress that I can't really, I don't know if she ever did anything else. Oh, I guess The Proposal is also one. I recently rewatched that. Doesn't hold up as much as I thought it would. I think they're both charming. That helps Mm -hmm. that movie. But the storyline is no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because because she's a truly abusive boss. Mm-hmm. in the beginning and so there's really not enough that happens there for it to be okay like she needs to go to therapy at some point for that to be not just like someone falling for their abusers love bombing or something like it just doesn't yeah quite- i mean that's definitely one of those enemies to lovers that's like a little more problematic and like i think that that is inherent to like boss assistant or like boss mm-hmm. employee enemies to lover stuff Th- th- those require a level of buy into the fantasy that I rarely can get behind. So, yeah. one of my favorite, I guess, like kind of in this territory, subversions of that trope is the movie. What the hell is it called? It just gets slipped my mind. Oh, uh, while while you were sleeping, did you ever see that? Oh yeah, yeah. That was also another Sandra Bullock one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But what's like fun about that is that one of them is in a coma and she's pretending right. that they're dating and it subverts that typical storyline in, in a fun There's way. a historical romance that I read that's basically an adaptation of While You Were Sleeping, but like in Regency era that I thought was very <laughs> funny. And the same thing happens, like spoiler alert, the coma guy's not the love interest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Next, next one for Christina. Next one for me is... Oh, so horror movies, I really love when they subvert the damsel in distress. Like, even when it's mm-hmm. so basic, I just mm-hmm. I always get a kick out of it when it turns out that the person that's supposed to be the damsel is actually the monster in mm-hmm. whatever capacity. And like, a, a girl walks home alone at night is a, is a good example of that. If you want more of like an art house kind Ooh. of approach, you could watch my short film, The Gaze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's an approach as well. Uh, but yeah, that's just a fun one. Cool. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll I'll talk about horse proximity for a second because yes, it's a romance trope, and I know I've been talking about a lot of romance guys. I'm in a mood, okay? But the <laughs> the rest of mine are not romance ones, and this is sort of a straddling two elements. So like forced proximity has always been a favorite of mine in storytelling because it's like putting people in a pressure cooker and like we already know I like arguments. <laughs> I especially like it in TV because for the same reasons that I like TV, which is that we get to see people we care about 
in a lot of different situations like that that's always and it allows actual time for growth that i think doesn't always uh happen with uh shorter pieces of media uh but the movie that most recently just really vibed well with me with forced proximity in it is palm springs which i think we talked about in our last bonus episode of last year when we were talking about recommendations palm springs is just an excellent movie i also rewatched that recently but that one they're stuck together there <laughs> it's just basically just the two of them very very good um but then i would also say like any like bottle episode of a tv show where um yep. the characters are stuck always one of my favorite episodes bad breaks from um B- burn notice <laughs> the mm-hmm. pinnacle for me of of <laughs> great television is an exceptional episode and it's because the main character is stuck in a bank heist basically any bank heist episode of like a procedural or even a non-procedural is almost always going to be better because it's like you're forced to like be really competent with limited materials and you really get to see like who is this person at their barest and that's what force proximity gives you the one i think it's the first or maybe the second christmas episode of bones bones is a complicated show but that is a very good episode it's very emotional because they're all like under quarantine at the lab on christmas they were all hoping to get home but there's like a sars scare i think and so like everyone in the lab who like had these family christmases like is stuck there and the main character is like had no christmas plans and she's like this is fine for me i wasn't gonna do anything and so it's like the meaning of christmas we're all stuck together and we have to like make our own family blah 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 anyways Force proximity, excellent. Excellent force proximity. And for my book recommendations, I will say pretty much any any Emily Henry book is going to get you there because she likes to kind of just like shut people away and (laughs) make them fall in love. Uh, Beach Read and Book Lovers both have a they're stuck in a small town together um, and are forced to participate in things together enough that they fall in love. And then also, if you want a clean romance one without sexy scenes. The Party Crasher by Sophie Kinsella is one of my favorite books that I've read this year. It's one of the funniest books that I've read this year. Premise is a woman like in her late 20s, her parents get divorced a couple of years before like the true start of the book. And her dad is now two years later or whatever, selling their family home that she's always loved. Uh, And she has fallen out with her father and his new girlfriend. um, And they're the ones who are selling the house. And they throw like a big like weekend party as like a going away party for like this big old, you know, crusty house. And she is sort of invited but not really invited and doesn't want to attend for passive aggressive reasons but there is like an old childhood toy or something at the house that she wants to like get so she sneaks into her own childhood home while this party is going on and then ends up kind of just like getting stuck and has to keep Mm. like hiding under tables while like big dramatic family conversations are happening or you know is like in the roof (laughs) you know in like the attic like so like the story just kind of keeps getting more absurd as she like keeps having to hide from people while she's looking for this old childhood toy and the guy that her her ex-boyfriend is there and ends up having to kind of like help her stay hidden and then like more and more people become aware of her and also have to keep her hidden and it's just like a comedy of a lot of stuff and she is like stuck in this house with all these people that she has really complicated relationships with for an entire weekend it's very funny and a good example of uh more light-hearted forced proximity yeah (laughs) i uh actually was on my list was bottle episodes Mm-hmm. And so it's essentially the same thing. And I think, you know, comedies always do it best. I know that Seinfeld has one that's in a Chinese restaurant. That's like a classic. Friends also has one <laughs> that's also really <laughs> famous where no one's ready. Um, there was a good, really good version of that. Who talked about it? I think it was Jess who talked about it in our um, inclusive screenwriting episode where Jay-Z did a like black version of that episode of Friends with black actors. Mm -hmm. And it was like a commentary on how you can't just like slap diversity on a show written for white people by white people. Anyway, that's a tangent. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) necessarily recommending that episode. But uh, Superstore, I think, has a really good one, but I can't recall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where I think they've had it twice actually once i think they just get trapped in the store because like the company is trying to cut costs and so like they like turn everything off at night but it means that like none of them can get out but then there's a season finale at one point that i think is also kind of a bottle episode when there's a a tornado warning and they Mm -hmm, all are stuck in the store while this like tornado is raging outside yeah 
Um, but I would say like one of my favorites is the community episode where they're trying to figure out who stole Annie's pen. I don't yeah. know if you remember that. <laughs> yep. And they refuse to leave the room until someone owns <laughs> up to it, which I think is also tying back to my love of the sort of one who of us it. did it. Yeah, the yep. who done it. Um, that's like a perfect mix of those two things. I mean, like those have to go together, right? Like even Clue, it's like they're stuck in the same house. Right. Like yes. you, it, it's hard to have a who done it if people are just sort of like wandering around. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, great, great combo. That's why I think like slashers, like if you're stuck in sure. a school or you're just like you, your car broke down and you're stuck in the woods, like and those two definitely go hand in hand. I think Green Room would be a good example of like a thriller yes, horror that's like totally. it's not exactly single location. Like uh, there, there's like they, they, there's two or three primary locations, but the the main like most of the movie is set at the like Nazi club <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a punk band who's performing uh, at a club that they just that they as they're performing realize is like a white supremacist like skinhead bar uh and then they get trapped in their green room by the skinheads um and have to escape yeah really good movie it is a really good movie intense it very intense definitely intense as soon as you're like a punk band stuck in a nazi bar it's like okay so this is this is gonna go places what's your what's your next one so my next one kind of in similar vein i love when we get to see the same thing from multiple character perspectives like when we rewind like the back kind of yeah i think community also has an episode like that mm-hmm. where it's when they're with the with the dice um yeah the darkest timeline episode yes and you watch the same thing from everyone's perspective that's obviously a brilliant episode of TV, but it's done, you know, very well in a variety of ways. Like Pulp Fiction is a famous movie example of that, mm-hmm. where like so- something that is sort of a throwaway moment suddenly becomes like super important or super funny because of the new context that you're seeing it in. That's always mm-hmm. a favorite of mine. One of the movies I watch, I wouldn't say every Christmas, but like when I'm in the mood for a non-Christmassy Christmas movie, one of those years where it's like I'm tired of all the usuals, there's an independent, independent-ish movie from, I think, 1999 called Go. Have you seen that? Probably not. I have not. There's one t- storyline that's like, who the hell cares? It's like a bunch of guys going to Vegas and theirs is like the least interesting storyline, but it's one... <laughs> the main character is a cashier at a supermarket and she's just trying to get her shift like she switches shifts or something I can't remember exactly what the catalyst is but it turns into just like a night that goes horribly awfully wrong and you see it from a variety of different perspectives and it's a it's a fun very like 90s late teen early 20s kind of a sort of like indie comedy of errors sure also sort of dark thriller just like wild night kind of a thing. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Okay, I'll I'll definitely have to check that out because uh, I always am looking for alternative Christmas movies. I just remembered like, how did I not mention Die Hard for Force Proximity? Of course, Die Hard has to be oh, yeah, up it's, there it's, for it's, Force Proximity. <laughs> Come on. Um, the, all this, this girly love stuff on my brain has poisoned me against Die Hard. Uh, but I wanted to say about um, the Rashomon kind of effect, one kind of not quite subversion but like a an alternative version of the Rashomon trope that I like there was uh it it was I saw it most recently in an episode of Never Have I Ever Uh, one of the versions of this that I like is when it's not another character's perspective it's the same character's perspective but with new context so mm-hmm. like I I think the 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 I don't remember what season it is because I recently watched the entirety of Never Have I Ever Again um, with my mom and and my partner but there is an episode at some point where Davy is dating someone I don't remember which boy she's dating at this particular time and she thinks back to a scene from an earlier episode now thinking that like somebody else is being more flirtatious than she actually is and so the scene plays out again but like everyone's tone of voice is slightly different so it's the exact same scene in the same words but different performances now that she has a different perception Mm. of events and i always find that funny that is funny yeah and i will also say the other comedy version that's like an additional kind of alt to the rashomon is there's an episode of leverage which is rashomon-y but in addition to it being just like general rashomon like you're saying the same heist from everyone's perspective is the way in which the other characters portray each other 
Like, Mm -hmm. you know, when they do their retelling, like one character's super Southern. He's like, I don't even have a Southern accent. And they're like, I don't know. You just kind of look like you would, though. So that's how (laughs) I remember you. And it's like that kind of stuff where like, then it becomes this sort of competing perception thing. And you get to see the scene, but with like other characters, like acting very strangely, just because that's how the other characters are either retelling it for comedy or genuinely remembering it. Um, And that's also good. Not like a perfect example, but not out is a movie that does that even if not in actually like watching the same scene you're hearing Mm -hmm. the same thing but from a totally different perspective and adding layers of comedy like how they all say that she's like the main character is from a different country Mm -hmm. and yeah so there's just like layers of comedy in hearing someone else's telling of the same thing you've already seen or possibly showing you the same scene from a different perspective a helpful trope to really dig into human nature and perception and how reality is not always the same and like develop characters yeah (laughs) like because you develop characters through their bias through Mm -hmm. just like the way that they see the world who they focus on like you just said how they perceive other people like that's it's just a fun way to develop a character without possibly having to write dialogue that will do that or even give you their backstory but just like the way that they're perceiving a situation tells you who they are in comparison to someone else and how they perceived it. Totally. No, I think that's that's a great point. I, I'm going to combine two tropes because they're similar in vain. Uh, so th- th- this is a TV trope primarily. And it's the first one. Neither of these have like a name or they might. And I just don't know it. Um, somebody mm-hmm. who knows TV tropes, let me know. But I like it when there is a like boring character who gets an evil twin version that the same actor gets to play. And it's yes, obvious they're having it. way more fun. So like Angel. I told you Angel's- we were going to talk about Angel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also... There is a like half a season of Supernatural back when I watched that show where Jared Padalecki gets to be like evil version of him. It might be him without a soul. It might be him possessed. I don't actually remember the circumstances. I do know that that's the first time I ever saw Jared Padalecki act. It was much more fun. (laughs) (laughs) He's a much more interesting character. And like, no offense, Angel, I like you a lot, but like, you're more fun when you're evil. So like a character who's normally boring, but is more fun when they're evil. And then I will say a like a sub kind of trope to this that I also like uh, that Angel also fits into is flamboyant villains having a good time. And I don't mean flamboyant in like the gay coded way necessarily. I just mean like evil characters who like fucking love being evil. Because I think Mm -hmm. there's absolutely a place for more villains in media that genuinely believe in like the things that they're doing. They're just like doing it in an evil way. But I have to say, especially as someone who loves genre TV, I like seeing a villain who's just like, hell yeah, I'm a villain. I'm the worst guy ever. And it's just like very casually like, yeah, this like unapologetic. So like Siler from Heroes is this is the pinnacle of this trope to me. Certainly like Mm -hmm. obviously beginning of Heroes. I tried to rewatch Heroes recently just because I love Siler so much. And I was like, no, I can't do it. I can't rewatch this show. It's way too melodramatic. But the character of Siler is so fucking funny. He's so just like even keeled he's like i'm just a guy who sucks who kills people and it i don't know it just appeals to me i have no deep yeah. reason for it i just think <laughs> it's fun yeah characters you love to hate like they're always fun mm-hmm. and angel i think is that for me because i found angel so boring for the first mm-hmm. season and a half and i think once he gets his own show he gets more of a personality and he's sure yeah. much more enjoyable to watch on angel but on buffy He's just so boring, except when he's Angelus. Yeah, agreed. And then he wears mm-hmm. his tight little pants and kills people. And you're like, <laughs> go off. And is like quippy and having fun. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that. It's like, I, I think the reason that I like this trope is because of the contrast of like the the status quo of these types of characters. They're so buttoned up. And it's like, finally, this person gets to be free, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think Spike, I guess, would also be a good example of of flamboyant villains having a good Absolutely. time because, like, yeah, he. I, I think there's just like I don't know. There's something cathartic about the unapologeticness of someone who's just like, "This is who I am and where I'm at." And if you don't like it, maybe I'll kill you. Who knows? The night is long. <laughs> He's definitely the perfect example of of that. Like, not the because Angel's a great example of someone being boring, and then when they. Mm-hmm get to be this other version of it. Mm -hmm. But Spike is just that from the beginning. And it's great because he gets to be funny. I think that's like what those villains get to have is- That's a good point. 
humor about it. And so it's hard to not find that enjoyable because who wants to, I don't know, it's like, that's really boring if someone's either has no personality and they're doing horrific things or they're so tortured about it that mm-hmm. there's like real no, there's no sort of conflict to that. And it's like, okay, well, I don't know. It's just, yeah. yeah. After a while, it's like, this is just a bummer. Like, you gotta <laughs> yeah. loosen up. I get that, like, you know, there's some supernatural reasons why, like, you could lose your shit at any time. And so you have to, like, be very, like, even keel. But, like, come on, dude. <laughs> Give me something. Yeah. <laughs> I have two other short ones. Good. Maybe I'll join in on them with you. <laughs> so this one, I don't even have a specific example from. I guess this is also a romance trope. I didn't organize these well. It's fine. <laughs> this is also an argument-related trope, but I can't help it i love it when the first time a character says i love you is during an argument like i mm. love when like there is an argument and they're getting exasperated and frustrated and like the sort of catharsis of the argument is like well i love you okay or like because i love you or, you know like when when a declaration of love is expressed in frustration for the first time i just think it's neat yeah i just think it's fun it always it always does it for me like christine my my other writing partner from our our writing partners uh episode she is a big fan of when people do title drops i hate that shit i can't do it but she's like honestly anytime someone like says burn notice on burn notice i'm like <laughs> hell yeah that's the name of the show um <laughs> she she has her own rules for that but like that's her thing for me it's the Literally any time, it, it, for any reason, a character expresses their love for the first time in an argument, I'm there. Yeah. Fun fact, that is how my husband first told me he loves me. No way! Oh, I <laughs> yeah. love that. That's hilarious. Yes. That's incredible. Incredible stuff. Um, okay, and so then my final trope... I I just called it the I'm Spartacus trope, even though I haven't seen Spartacus, but it's the the moment in usually some kind of like war or, you know, sci-fi genre project where a character's like identity must be concealed for one reason or another and a group of people come together to help them conceal it so like the moment Mm -hmm. from i'm spartacus i looked it up on youtube to double check that like this is the right movie and it is some for whatever reason in spartacus i haven't seen it i didn't bother to look it up (laughs) have you seen spartacus no okay it doesn't matter it's (laughs) it's a movie and spartacus's identity i guess is important and like there's a bunch of guys that are like about to be put to death and they're like either all of you can die or the one of you who is Spartacus can make himself known and will just kill him. And so a guy stands up and he's like, all right, well, I'm Spartacus. And then somebody else uh, further into the group is like, I'm Spartacus. And so they're all just like shouting, I'm Spartacus, like as this show of solidarity. And I think either Spider-Man, I think it's Spider-Man 2 where this happens. I have other Um, examples. Perfect. But like that kind (laughs) of shit. It gives me the chills in the same way that like the unlikely hero chosen one trope does, where it's like, it's just an example of humanity banding together. They don't have to. There's no, like, they might actually get hurt if they show this level of solidarity, but they do it because it's the right thing to do. All that Mm -hmm. shit is excellent. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Other examples, please. I I, want it in my veins. I love it when it's regular people banding together. I just to go back to my own psychology a little, I think I love chosen one narratives because as a teenager, I had a lot of responsibility thrust upon me. Mm. Like I had to basically raise my cousins after school and it was like family responsibility of ways I needed to step up and grow up and be an adult. And I felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that just like resonates with me strongly where it's like it's not a choice. Validates that like you you are mature. and Right. It's like it's not a choice, but I have to do it Mm -hmm. because only I can. Sure. And like that's how I felt as an adult. I would say I. Like that, I resent that. <laughs> so now sure. I'm like, I want to choose to step up if that's what I want. But you know, whatever. Yeah, that anyway. makes sense. <laughs> um, but uh, a more recent example of your trope is in, I think, season one of Sex Education, where they're trying yeah, to figure out who's yeah. vulva. It's a photo of a vulva. <laughs> and it's, um, I can't remember the character's name. I don't remember. I haven't seen season one in a while, but I know what you're talking about. I do remember this. It's it's the character who's like the mean girl that she's like the rich oh, mean uh, girl. He, the one who uh, he dates in season three. Yeah, in season three. It's hers. 
But the South Asian actress, whatever her name is, Ruby. stands up and says it's hers. Yes, it's Ruby's. She, it's definitely Ruby's. And I believe she's in a fight with, oh, Olivia. Her character's name is Olivia. Simona Ashley plays her. She was just oh, super uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she stand, they were in a fight, but then she ends up like standing up and saying it's hers. I'm pretty sure she's the first one to do it. But then everyone says it's theirs. Mm-hmm. And and they all stand up for her, even though this, like, she's a bully. And I don't know mm-hmm. if everyone knew it was hers or if it was just, like, on principle that they weren't going to allow anyone to shame a woman in school for having a photo of her vulva out there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that was the example that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, like, it's such a, like, distilled, like, solidarity of humanity kind of thing. And I just, it, it gives me the chills every single time. Like, thinking about the Spider-Man scene. Oh, my gosh, so good. Like, thinking about that scene. Like, it just, it gives me a jolt of hope that you don't get every day. <laughs> and I think that's what a yes. good trope does. It's, like, it gives you a jolt of something that's, like, it feels settled like because it's a common enough structure you can do a lot with it like it's there are inflexible elements of it that allow so much freedom and other elements and so Mm -hmm. it's like very comforting to get to see and it doesn't always have to be a comforting version of the trope Mm -hmm. like I'm not saying that like only comfort here but like I do think there is something comforting about like there the cultural knowledge of a trope can make a new version of a trope story even more powerful and i think that's cool that like what is it what's exciting about tropes is all that has come before like we all have to sort of agree to this sort of encyclopedia of cultural understandings for it to make sense and it means that like you can't just watch one thing you have to watch a lot of things. You have to engage with a lot of stories. And I like that tropes sort of invite you to seek out other kinds of stories after you've seen one that you like, because, hey, we all need more excuses to engage with different kinds of art and explore it. And tropes give you an easy sort of way of starting out before you can branch out on your own. That's right. That's a great ending sentiment, but I also just want to bring (laughs) up another example. Great. Because we were talking about sex education and that reminded me of the bottle episode. I don't know if it's entirely a bottle episode or just like half of it is a bottle episode. There's probably stuff happening with the boys in it. But the girls are all in detention together. It's in the second season. And it's when Amy is dealing with PTSD from from her um, assault on the bus. And all the characters are forced together and realize they have to realize that they have, you know, more in common than, than differences. Um, and they bond over basically just like being victimized by men. Unfortunately, that's the thing that they all find they have in common. And then they all ride the bus with her at the end. And it's mm-hmm. just such a lovely... I was thinking about the bus scene, even though it's not exactly I'm Spartacus, but it is a matter of like... It's like that sort of Group solidarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Great stuff. Great stuff. <laughs> that show's well, great. Yeah, it is a g- very good show. I, I I was definitely going to bring it up in our end of year Patreon um, episode where we talk about like what we watched this year. They just announced that, uh, what's his name from Schitt's Creek? David from Schitt's Creek is joining the cast. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, he's joining the cast as I think a teacher like coming from abroad. Hmm. That's exciting. I'm just glad there's going to be more of it because like Netflix is famous for canceling things after three seasons. <laughs> yeah, well, when it's white main characters, primarily, they're pretty good at keeping it on the air. Yep, that's a Not to say it's not a great point. show because it 100% is a great show, but a lot of great shows starring characters of color get canceled. So. Never have I ever. Has it been confirmed that they're going to have a season four? Have it, has it already been picked up? This is not a I part of the it, podcast. Now I just want to know. <laughs> I don't know if it's been announced, but it, ha- but it has to be. It's on IMDb. Like Never there's, have I ever. Somebody has added like season yeah. four as like, I think we're going to fill it in later kind of stuff. I think with signing a deal with Mindy, she probably got extra seasons like in her initial contract. That makes sense. Okay. Well, that that this is completely unrelated to the conversation. Um, yes. So I guess uh, to, to finish it off, hey, everyone, tell us your favorite tropes. What are your favorite yes. tropes? What are your favorite examples of those tropes? Why? Let's have a conversation. I am always looking for new things that I can watch iterations of endlessly. Me too. <laughs> also, what tropes do you hate? Because that's yeah. also fun to talk about. 
Yeah, if you guys want us to do like a more negative episode <laughs> in the future, I'm sure we could come up with some good examples of like tropes we hate. It would um, be endless. Yeah, so. it would definitely be endless. But like, you know, we've already talked about problematic faves and like the death of the author kind of concept. So if you want us to talk about death of the structure, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> uh, and if you like more episodes like this, let us know. Just in yes. general, us talking about media in general, not necessarily learning about a subject. Yeah, because this is our final solo episode of the year before our just like end of year, what did we do this year episode. So we're obviously starting to think about season three and, and what season three is going to look like. So if you have a strong preference of what kinds of episodes of our show you like the most uh, and you want to hear more of in the future, we really want to hear from you. So please let us know in all of our in all of our spots which in a second the intro the outro will read you and are also as always in the episode description so like please communicate with us tell us use your words yeah thank you okay bye bye <laughs> thanks so much to kelsey rauber for our theme music kaylee brown for our podcast art as relief for editing this episode and to all of you for listening links to learn more about them are in our episode description and thank you to our booby vips who are our ten dollar supporters on patreon that's kim garland amanda blunt Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every podcast episode we post for free, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we begin our Representation Matters mini-series with the Disabled Writers Committee at the WGA West. Be sure to tune in.